You're listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and on behalf of the members of our church, let me just say what a blessing it is to have you listen to the message we're sharing and to become a part of what God is up to over here in our little corner of creation. To learn more about Union, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org. Friends, we live in trying times. There's no doubt about it. There's global conflicts and catastrophes, political and economic uncertainty, cultural changes, generational shifts, and oh yeah, all of the usual trials and triumphs of just being human. Even if you look around and think to yourself, I don't know, pastor, life seems pretty good to me. Don't worry, we all have our trying times. In the church, we set aside 40 days leading up to Holy Week and the celebration of Easter as a time of trial, a time of testing what God can do and what we can do with God. The prophet Malachi wrote, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Friends, I pray that you may experience that overflowing flowing blessing, even in trying times. Now here's this week's message. The first scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Well, this morning we're continuing in a Lenten series called Trying Times. We're continuing to seek to understand what it means to follow Christ through the trials of life. Lent is a season that mirrors Jesus' 40 days in the desert, a time of trial that he chose to go into that he did not avoid. During that time, he faced three temptations. You'll recall we talked about this a couple weeks ago. In the first temptation, he's confronted with his own physical and mental limits. After 40 days of fasting, he is looking death directly in the face. But he remembers that it is God and not death who has the last word. He says, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Then in his second temptation, Jesus was taken up and placed upon the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem where everyone could see him. And and it was suggested that he could throw himself down. And surely, surely, because he was God's son, there would be angels that would come in and they they would bear him up off the ground. Surely God would not allow him to die in this grisly public way. But Jesus again, refuses to tempt fate and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And perhaps it was the memory of this temptation 
to a kind of vain, self-seeking, attention-grabbing display of his nearness to God that prompted Jesus to say what he said to his disciples about taking up the cross. See, he was teaching them about what was to come. He was prophesying about his own life, and he had to lay the groundwork for it because surely when it was coming, when it was happening, when he was being arrested and betrayed, they wouldn't understand it. And so he he prepared them with this little morsel of incomprehensibility. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life will gain it. It's like one of those Zen koans, like what is the sound of one hand clapping? You, you think about it, you turn it over in your mind, you focus on it, then you forget about it, then you remember it again hours, weeks later. It's this nagging thought that just sits there. To lose one's life is to gain one's life. To gain one's life is to lose one's life. So I want, those, I want that koan, those words, to linger in our minds as we hear it. This second scripture reading. This is a narrative from the book of the prophet Daniel. It's one of the last books written in the Old Testament. It was written in Aramaic, so modern was it to that, uh, to that scripture. Uh, it tells the story of Daniel, who is a Jew living in exile, first in Babylon under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, and then in Persia under the authority of King Darius. It's in that later period that our story is taken from this morning. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because there was an excellent spirit in him and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom. But they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because Daniel was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The other men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the presidents and the satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors were agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone divine or human, for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, king, establish this interdict and sign the document, so it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. Now, although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, He continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room that opened towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and to praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king and said, Concerning the interdict, O king, did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone divine or human within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? And the king answered, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. 
Then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you sign. He is saying his prayers three times a day. But when the king heard the charge, he was very distressed. He was determined to save Daniel. And until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is a law that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king gave the command. And Daniel was brought and he was thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, send your spirit in this place, that we may know you more fully, that we may trust you more deeply, that we may be still and know that you are God. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It has been brought to my attention that my sermons tend to be a little academic and intellectual. Perish the thought. So today I want to be extremely practical. Today's sermon is called How to Not Be Eaten by Lions in Three Easy Steps. I even went to a website called WikiHow where you can learn how to do anything. They have an article, How Not to Be Eaten by a Lion my research. (laughs) Step one, do not approach a lion's den. This seems pretty obvious, I suppose. And maybe not that applicable in the case of this story. Of course, Daniel did not have a whole lot of choice about ending up in the lion's den, but I think generally speaking, The idea that we should seek out such dangers in the name of our faith is maybe not such a good idea after all. I've been reading a book about the early days of the Christian church in the Roman Empire. And, of course, most of the stories told in the church over the years about that period are about the way the Romans persecuted the Christians, how they would take them and they would put them in arenas and have lions come 
and attack them as a public spectacle. But the, the history actually is a little more complicated than that. In fact, for the most part, the Romans were kind of flummoxed by these Christians who seemed to have a kind of death wish. The Romans would give them every possible opportunity to absolve themselves, to, 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 to get off from the charges of impiety, and the Christians just seemed to insist on wanting to go and meet the lions. It seemed like it was just madness to the Romans. And of course, I think having a, a fear of big cats is probably a good thing for our general well-being. So I would say, just as a general rule, we should avoid approaching a lion's den. But, but the thing about Daniel's situation is he doesn't have a whole lot of a choice. In fact, long before he's put in the den, he is in the midst of lions. Daniel's a foreigner living abroad. He, he rose to a position of great authority in the Persian Empire, somewhat miraculously and unexpectedly. He'd done this through his extraordinary ability to interpret dreams for the king. At the time, uh, dreams were thought not to be our unconscious sort of conjuring up images of our own fears and, and longings. Rather, they were understood to be revelations from the divine that required interpretation, and Daniel had a knack for this interpretation. His skill at dream interpretation implied not only that he, he had some cleverness or some trick of his mind, but that he had a closeness to the divine. And we see that expressed in his practice, in his discipline of praying three times a day. He also seems to have ex other extraordinary abilities. He was described as being the most successful of the Persian satraps, which is a pretty unexpected turn for a foreigner put in a position of authority. And of course, all these special abilities are summed up in that first verse we heard, where Daniel is described as having an excellent spirit. It says he had an excellent spirit. He had a beautiful soul. And that phrase struck out to me this week. We talked about it a little bit in Bible study on Tuesday. It, of course, stuck out to me even more yesterday when I received the news about uh, Ken. I spoke to someone yesterday who said, you know, from the moment I met Ken Sandall, I thought, wow, this is a man to be admired. And the more you get to know him, the more you admire him. And someone else said to me, his heart was always in the right place. He was always kind. He was always sincere. When I think of someone with an excellent spirit, I think Ken. That's the kind of person you want to have as a friend. That's the kind of person you want close to you. And, uh, and the king, in this case, recognizes that. The king saw the excellent soul of Daniel and called him a friend, cared for him, worried over him. But then this story tells us that there's something about the excellent soul that not only invites wonder and admiration, but also jealousy, confusion, maybe even hatred. Perhaps it's because most of us would rather not be exposed directly to the kind of radiance of the divine that comes with that closeness, with that excellence of the soul. So we find ways to cover up 
that presence. We hide it behind the trappings of religion. We cloister it away within the four walls of a sanctuary. We hide it beneath our skin, deep down, where we may possess it as our own. We keep our faith to ourselves, this pearl of great price that we hide within a hard shell. And meanwhile, the sharks circle. The lions, well, actually the lionesses, prowl around for the food, seeking out prey. And in a world where there are sharks and lions, it's hard to imagine that one would want to be on the side of the prey. We would much rather be the hunter than the hunted. Then we can go in the lion's den. We don't have to be afraid. I saw a woman at the store the other day. She had a sweatshirt on, and it said, uh, Messy buns and loaded guns. I'm raising wolves, not sheep. Striking. These were superimposed over a kind of stars and stripes design, and I thought, well, that does seem about right. That does seem like the kind of attitude one would want to raise their child in in today's America, a place where being a wolf is a whole lot better than being a sheep. I mean, what, what parent would want to subject their child to being vulnerable out in the world, to be open with their hopes and their dreams when what the world tends to give such souls is schemes to destroy them? And so out here in the lion's den, we're supposed to be a lion, be a wolf. But the gospel tells us otherwise. The gospel teaches us that we are sheep. We are led by a shepherd. The gospel teaches us that we are not to boast or to preen or to aggrandize ourselves like those big lions with those big manes. But we are to be humble and patient and kind. The gospel tells us not to approach the lion's den, or at least not to approach it as though we were lions, as though we belonged there. It is the way of the world to shout, crucify. But Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus didn't come into the world to be admired, to be looked at. He came to be followed. You see how different following is. From admiring. Many people who call themselves Christians, indeed many who do not call themselves Christians, admire Jesus. They admire his teachings. But how many can honestly say they follow those teachings, especially when they lead into the lion's den? Step two, if you must approach a lion, you have to remain calm. You cannot panic and you cannot run away. Jesus said, take up your cross. I will be taking up my cross, he says. That's going to happen. The world is going to come for me. So if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross too. But how many of us, when presented with this invitation, this choice, yes or no, how many of us remain calm, do not panic, do not run away? 
In the story of Daniel, there's this moment when the trap has been laid. We heard all about it, about all the scheming and the maneuvering to get, to get it set. And then it says, Daniel knew. Daniel knew the document had been signed. But he chooses to continue praying. He chooses not to alter his path. He walks right into the trap. And I wonder if it was even a choice for him. You see, the people who have that kind of closeness with God, it almost becomes a habit, a discipline so rooted in their being that they don't even have to think twice about what they're doing, about whether to defy an edict that stands in the way of their faith. Of course, to gain that kind of faith, that kind of life, one has to lose another kind of life. That's what Jesus says. And I don't want to make that sound like it's an easy choice. If a life of ambition, of being a wolf in a world of sheep, of seeking out the desires of one's own heart weren't appealing, there wouldn't be any temptation, there wouldn't be any trial involved here. If taking pride in who one is and one's successes and the culture one is born into, what one is able to accomplish, if that isn't a good thing, if that doesn't feel good, it would be, there would be no need for a kind of spiritual discipline that denies that, that is about losing that for the sake of a, a different kind of life that is promised to be more abundant, even if it is less immediately gratifying. The poet uh, Jane Hirschfield has a wonderful little poem that I heard for the first time this week. It's called, uh, the poem is called A Cedary Fragrance. It goes like this. Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water, not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. See, Jane Hirschfield spent eight years living in a Zen monastery in California, out in the woods in a little cottage with a bare floor and thin plastic sheets for windows. Every morning she would arise at four o'clock and wash her face with cold water because there was no hot water. And then she would go and join the other monks in the meditation hall and they'd spend hours there meditating. And she explained in the interview I heard with her that, you know, we all think of Zen monks as sitting there in this perfect state of bliss and calm and peace at oneness with the world. But she says, you can't forget Zen monks are people too. They itch, they ache, they get bored, they nod off. Happens to everyone. Meditation is something you have to practice. And part of the reason you go to a monastery is so that you can be disciplined in that practice by the structure you find yourself in. And of course, the Zen monk may have those moments of clarity and deep inner peace there on the meditation pillow where the boundary between the self and the non-self melts away and all of reality is one. But those moments are are the product of hours and days and weeks and months and even years of sitting there itching and aching, of choosing to make the unwanted wanted. And that sounds a lot to me like what Christ is talking about. 
Jesus said, do you not know that I came to seek the lost? That I came to seek the ones who are not found, the ones who are not wanted. You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is not what we want to do. Taking up the cross is not what we want to do. Jesus says, I must undergo great suffering and be given over to the authorities and be killed. Now who wants to follow me? The only way to choose to follow Christ is to choose to make the unwanted wanted. That's what Jesus does again and again. Because Jesus had in him the very love of God. That is not just for what is popular or what is valued or what is strong. The love of God is for the world. And so if you ever feel unwanted, if you ever feel unloved, know that God, that Christ chooses you. Step three. Never turn your back on lions. Lions are kind of like bears and wolves and other uh, predators. They can be intimidated by beings of greater statue and stature and louder volume than they are. And, and in some cases, they are more afraid of us than we are of them, more perplexed by finding these featherless bipeds out there in the woods where we don't belong. And that's true to a point. And so you should never really play dead because that just invites them to come closer. You should make yourself large and loud. And slowly back away. So you have to remain calm. But that doesn't mean you have to remain silent. And that is what we were reminded of in, in Daniel's story as well. Because I think the most astonishing character in the story is not Daniel. It's not Daniel. It's the king. It's the king of Persia who worries over this Judean exile who cares about him, who seeks to deliver him and rescue him by whatever means he can. We don't know what happened to Daniel when he went down in that tomb. We don't know what he said. We don't know what he did. But we do know that the king said from outside the tomb that he hoped that Daniel's God would intervene on his behalf. And we don't know what Daniel did down in the tomb all night, but we know that the king didn't sleep. He didn't eat. And then at first light, he ran to the tomb, I mean, the, the lion's den, and the stone is rolled back, and he shouts, Daniel, did God save you? Now, why would you even ask? He just sent him in there with a bunch of lions. Why would you even bother to check unless you had some hope, some faint sense that it might be possible that God had indeed delivered him. I don't think it's that King Darius suddenly had some great conversion experience and he believed in the living God of Daniel, that he shared Daniel's fate. He didn't pray toward Jerusalem. He didn't share Daniel's religion. But what he did see was Daniel's faith. He saw Daniel's excellence of soul. And so the king saw that he was a friend to God, and he admired that. And more than that, he cheered and supported that faith whenever he could. 
And it goes to show that we don't have to surround ourselves with people who share the same faith as we do to shape those people with our faith. It's on us to live our faith and to live that nearness to the divine. But it's on us to live it in a way that can be seen by others. The thing about Jesus telling the disciples to take up a cross is that a cross is meant to be seen. A crucifixion is a public spectacle. He didn't want people to just go around doing good deeds and eschewing any sort of recognition. He wanted those things to be seen in the full view of the world so that the sharks and the wolves and the lions could all see that success didn't have to mean killing and destroying. Jesus could have jumped from the top of that temple, and probably the angels would have come and borne him up just like the angels came and shut those lions' mouths. That probably could have happened. But Jesus says, we shall not put God to the test in that way. Instead, we shall be the ones put to the test. You shall be put to the test. I shall be put to the test. Will you take up the cross? Will you follow Christ? And before you answer, you, you have to know that in the end, this is not about testing our strength or our resolve. In the end, this is about the fact that by the grace of God, we are not tested and tried on the basis of our strength or our resolve alone but by the excellence of Christ, by Christ's strength, by Christ's spirit, poured out into our lives in the waters of baptism, fed at the communion table, ignited in our chests with every living breath. So do not be afraid. Do not back down. Be still and know that God does not abandon us. For when the stone was rolled away, The lion's den was not a tomb, but a testimony to the fact that the living God will deliver. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message encouraged you, maybe challenged you, but connected with you somehow. If you'd like to connect with us, you can reach out on Facebook or Instagram at Church by the Park. The theme music you hear is Just Do It by RKVC. Until next time, may the grace and peace of Christ be with you.